People are fascinated by prophecies. They want to know the future. They want to know if someone can actually predict the future. And what about these so-called prophecies? Have any of them been fulfilled? This is Evidence and Answers with Christian apologist, scholar, and speaker, Pat Zucharin. I'm Kevin Harris, and we're going to be discussing the Messianic prophecies. And Pat, this time of year, uh, when we start talking about the coming of Jesus Christ for the first time, we often concentrate on the messianic prophecies. What do we mean by that? Right, Kevin. You know, one of the most powerful testimonies upholding the deity of Christ is the testimony of prophecy. And this makes Christianity and especially Jesus Christ very unique. There's no person that has entered the history of mankind who has so many specific prophecies made about him and he fulfilled every single one. In fact, J. Barton Payne, in his book, The Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, a massive, massive work, records that there are over 100 prophecies or predictions made of Christ before he ever set foot upon the earth. Wow. Now, we hear about the prophecies of Nostradamus uh, and uh, maybe even prophecies in other religions. Now, how do the prophecies of Christ differ from these? That's a great point that you bring up, Kevin. You know, the Messianic prophecies, the prophecies about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, are specific prophecies, and they are not vague. There are numerous Messianic prophecies predicting detailed accounts and events of what is going to happen in his life. So they're quite specific and not vague. A lot of prophecies that you may hear from psychics today, they're quite vague. Uh, I remember Gene Dixon predicting that uh, a young ruler will be assassinated, you know, and that's the year that Kennedy got shot. Well, that, that was a pretty vague uh, prophecy there. There are many uh, young leaders of countries, and in fact, Kennedy's opponent was Nixon, who was a very young candidate at that time as well. Biblical prophecy would have been very specific, naming that presidential candidate, uh, what state he was from, by how many votes he would win, how he would die, the name of his assassin, you know, that's the level of biblical prophecy. Now, you mentioned a very popular person here, Nostradamus. And Nostradamus has uh, tens of hundreds of prophecies written in his book. Most of them were incorrect. There are two that are very popular, and let me just read one of them. And this is supposedly the prophecy of Hitler. And this is the passage regarding the prophecy of Hitler here. It reads like this, Kevin. In the year that is to come soon and not far from Venus, the two great ones of Asia, Africa, shall be said to come from the Rhine and Ister, crying and tears shall be at Malta and on the Italian shore. There you go. Do you see the prophecy of Hitler there, Kevin? Uh, no, I mean, Hister may sound a little bit like it. But, right, uh, that's it. That's the prophecy that many say predicted Adolf Hitler. And really, it's the word here, Ister, and really... What, he's, what Nostradamus is talking about here is two rivers, the Rhine and the Ister. In fact, in the commentary here by Ray Comfort, he says Ister is probably the lower Danube River. That's kind of prophecies here that Nostradamus did. He made many prophecies that did not come true. And even the, one, the two that many people cite are quite vague. You really got to twist the interpretation there to get Adolf Hitler. And in the Quran, you know, most of the predictions... There are very few, and most of them are really exhortations of a religious military leader of Muhammad exhorting his men to fight and that God will give him the victory. Uh, there's one prediction, 
in Surah chapter 30 about the Roman victory over the Persian army at Issus, but it does not come within the time period that he mentions in the prophecy. And so there are not many specific detailed prophecies in the Quran. Another one, the Book of Mormon, you know, supposedly predicts the discovery of Columbus as he discovered America. Well, the oldest manuscript we have of the Book of Mormon dates in the mid-1800s. And so that's a pseudo-prophecy. That's not a prophecy on the level of the Bible. So when it comes to biblical prophecy, the Bible is superior in its number and its detail uh, more than any other religious book that's out there. Yeah, Pat, you know, you mentioned that uh, uh, the level of biblical prophecy, in particular messianic prophecy, is so far above the vague prophecies that you're going to hear from various psychics and so on, uh, in that uh, the messianic prophecies really predict where he would be born, where he would come from, uh, whose line he would be from, not just that a young ruler would, uh, would come about, which would be vague. Yep, you're right on that point, Kevin. The prophetic record of Christ, Pat, presupposes that the Old Testament canon existed before the first century. Uh, now, do we know that the Old Testament and these prophecies existed before Christ? Otherwise, that's just pseudo-prophecy. Yeah, that's a good point you bring up, Kevin. You know, a lot of skeptics claim that the Old Testament canon and these prophecies were not there. They were actually completed at the Council of Jamnia in about 70 A.D., but looking at the historical evidence, we have good evidence that points to the fact that the Old Testament canon was completed centuries before Christ set foot upon the earth. I mean, the Old Testament canon was most likely completed by 400 B.C., but many of the books of the Old Testament date much earlier than that. And if you don't want to accept the 400 B.C. date, I mean, you certainly cannot put the date later than 150 B.C., very few skeptics will date the Old Testament canon to have been completed after 150 B B.C. Very few. Um, the last prophet Malachi writes in about 450 B.C. And the Old Testament canon, therefore, was completed shortly after that. Now, how do we know this? Well, first we have the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And the Septuagint, very famous story behind its translation, was composed between 250 and 150 B.C. Now, this Greek translation comes from the Hebrew text. Therefore, we can conclude there was an Old Testament canon that existed from which the Septuagint comes from, that the Septuagint was translating, these translators were translating from. Therefore, this Old Testament canon must have existed decades, centuries before 250 B.C. Then we have the amazing discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in 1948. Among the Dead Sea uh, fragments, we discovered manuscript fragments from every book of the Old Testament except for the book of Esther. Now, some of the Old Testament books, like 1 Samuel, dated as early as the 4th century B.C. The famous scroll of Isaiah, the largest complete scroll that was found there dates about 150 to 100 BC. So the evidence indicates that the Old Testament canon was in place and was used by the Essene community, the Dead Sea or the Qumran community. They were using this canon at least two centuries before Christ set foot upon the earth. 
And finally, we have a writing from the Apocrypha, 2 Maccabees chapter 2. It's written about 104 B.C. to about 64 B.C. And the writer there talks about a collection of sacred books that Judas Maccabees knew about. And it states that when he entered the temple, he went into the temple library, and Judas found the library of Nehemiah. And the library of Nehemiah contained the Old Testament canon, all the books of the Old Testament, and other writings. So from this passage, we know that Judas Maccabees knew of the Old Testament canon and that this canon existed from at least before the first century BC. And it also calls this library of the Old Testament books the Library of Nehemiah the Prophet. Now, if you understand your Bible chronology, Nehemiah the Prophet is the prophet from the Old Testament who lived about 430 BC. And if he collected these books, which became his library, then the Old Testament canon was around from which he collected many of these books. So a big majority of the Old Testament books were written, which made up his library. So you put all these uh, historical evidences together, and there's good evidence to believe that the Old Testament canon existed four to two centuries before the life of Christ, and the prophecies were written well before he set foot upon this earth. Now, that's an important step, because once we can uh, establish here that the Old Testament predates Christ and predates uh, uh, the things that he fulfilled and did in his life, then we can from there determine that, in fact, these weren't written afterward uh, just to make it look like they were fulfilled, but they were, in fact, they, in fact, predate Christ. So, Pat, tell us some of the significant Old Testament prophecies uh, that predicted Christ. Right. Well, you know, as J. Barton Payne records in his wonderful book, The Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, there are over 100 prophecies made of Christ. And unfortunately, we don't have time to go over all of those prophecies. We'll just go over just a handful. And the reason I picked some of these to highlight is because some skeptics say, well, Christ was able to manipulate or maneuver his way and fulfill some of the predictions. Well, the ones that I'm going to mention here would be really hard for him to manipulate and get in a position to fulfill um, these predictions. First of all, Genesis 49, that the future Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. So begin to calculate in your mind as I go through these prophecies, what is the probability, you know, that Christ could have fulfilled these just by accident, just by chance? He needs to be born Jewish, and he needs to be born from the specific tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He needs to be born from the tribe of Judah. Not only that, the prophecy gets a little more specific. Isaiah chapter 9 says that he must be born a descendant of King David. Now that really begins to narrow it down. In fact, the famous Isaiah chapter 9 prophecy, and many of these prophetic passages, Kevin, have contained multiple, multiple prophecies. But the Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 prophecies state that not only mu must he be uh, from the tribe of Judah, he must also be a descendant of King David. And it says some interesting things about the coming Messiah. Verses 6 and 7 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Therefore, this coming Messiah will be human. He will be a child, will be a son. But he will also be divine, because the verse goes on to say, And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, or Father, or Ruler of Eternity, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, there will be 
no end. Therefore, he will also be divine. So he will be human, but he will also be divine. And he'll be a descendant of King David. So that's another powerful prophecy there. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says that the Messiah will come from the city of Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Well, that's the hometown of Jesse and King David. And it's a very, very small little town. Mm-hmm. You know, the probability of someone born Jewish, born from the line of King David, from the tiny city of Bethlehem, the probability of that already is very unlikely, but that's the, you know, the prophecies of the Messiah. He used to come from Bethlehem. In fact, even today, Kevin, Orthodox Jews expect their coming Messiah. I mean, they believe he hasn't come yet, but Orthodox Jews expect the Messiah to be born in the city of Bethlehem according to the Micah 5-2 passage. Then we have another one, one of the most well-known prophecies of Christ, Isaiah 53. This magnificent prophecy is written 700 years before the life of Christ. And in this chapter alone, there are over a dozen prophecies made of the coming Messiah. You know, verse 3, that he would be despised of men. Verse 4, that he would bear our griefs and our sorrows. Verse 5, that he would be pierced and wounded for our transgressions. Uh, Verse 5 again, by his stripes that we are healed, that God would lay upon him our iniquity. Verse 7, that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before he shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And if you look at the Matthew 26 account, the priests were surprised that Christ would not answer his accusers. Verse 8 says that he would be cut off from the land of the living, so he would be killed. And in verse 9, it says how he would be buried. He'd be assigned to the grave with the wicked and the rich. It's an oxymoron there, and we know in John 19 it was fulfilled. He'd was crucified with criminals, but he was buried in a rich man's tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 9, that he would be sinless. And then the passage goes on to say that God would prolong his days, that he would see his descendants, so he would be resurrected from the dead. He would be cut off from the land of the living, Hebrew idiom for being killed, but then he would be alive again. Right. So it talks about some kind of resurrection. So... You just look at that Isaiah passage, and it's a magnificent, uh, in that chapter alone, there are over a dozen prophecies made of the coming Messiah. I mean, if this was the only prophecy that we had, even if this is the only one that we had, I mean, it would still be a remarkable prophecy here. So we got the Isaiah 53 passage. Then we have Daniel chapter 9, the famous 77s. And the Daniel 9 passage predicts the date on which the Messiah would enter Jerusalem and and when he would be crucified. You know, if you read that Daniel chapter 9 passage, uh, Daniel is praying to the Lord. And finally, Gabriel comes and answers his requests. Now, the passage reads, you know, 77s are decreed for, for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint uh, the most holy. 
No one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Now, the prophecy states that when the decree is given to rebuild Jerusalem, there will be a span of 483 years and then the Messiah would come. Well, the decree is given in 444 B.C. by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, as recorded in the book of Nehemiah. The 62 sevens are 62 years times 7. That equals 424. And then he says 7 seven. So 7 times 7 is 49. So you add those two together, it comes out to 483 years. So from the decree was given in 444 B.C., you got 483 years from which the Messiah would enter the city of Jerusalem and, as Daniel states, would be cut off. Now, if you do math, you, you come out with about 39 A.D. and you say, well, we've got a few years here where we're off. Well, understand that the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. There's only 360 days in their calendar, and our calendar is a solar calendar. We have more days. So you subtract those days, and you end up, guess what? About 33 A.D. Yeah, and there's no year zero. So you go from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. And that goes in the equation as well. It's fascinating. Right. You know, and uh, some skeptics ask me, well, did the Jews before Christ accept this chronological timetable here? Well, according to Rabbi Nehumias, 50 years before Christ, he is cited by Grotius as saying that the time fixed by Daniel could not go beyond the next 50 years. In fact, the Talmud records that at the, around the time of Titus in 70 AD, it was believed the Messiah had come. But his appearance had been concealed until the Jews were rendered more worthy of his appearance. So from the evidence, the, Jew, the Jewish community accepted the chronology or the timetable of Daniel, and they were waiting and anticipating their Messiah. In fact, that's why the Essenes escaped into the desert and lived a monastic life, waiting for the arrival of their Messiah. Another passage, Isaiah 7:14, that the Messiah would be supernaturally born, born of a virgin. Now, skeptics will look at that passage, and the objection they throw up is they say, well, the Hebrew word there is Alma. Now, Alma can mean virgin, or it can mean young maiden. So the Messiah doesn't necessarily have to be supernaturally born of a virgin. That's the objection they often throw up. In fact, uh, when I was on radio just a couple of months ago, an atheist threw up this argument. Well, if you do a word study of Alma in the Old Testament, it is used to signify a virgin. You know, it is true that the word Alma can mean young maiden, but if you do a word study on how it's used throughout the Old Testament, it's used to signify a virgin. And also the Septuagint, remember, it's translated by devout Jews who translated it, uh, the Old Testament from the Hebrew into the Greek. The Septuagint, translated 200 years before Christ sets foot upon the earth, translates the word Alma in this passage as virgin. Parthenos. Right, so the Why Jews, in the world did mm -hmm. they do that? They must have really understood that uh, it means virgin. That's right. And so we have good evidence to translate it as a virgin, as supernatural birth of the Messiah. 
And then we have another prophecy here in Psalm 22:16 and in Zechariah 12 that the Messiah would be pierced. You know, in Psalm 22, verse 16, it describes a time when David felt forsaken and persecuted, but the details of his persecution, you know, described here in this passage did not occur in David's life. So we know that something more was going on in this prophecy than probably David realized at the time. And interestingly, the events that David describes here, they are fulfilled in the life of Christ. They have pierced my hands and feet. Exactly. I can see all my bones. Well, yes, Kevin, let me read a few of those passages. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now that didn't happen in the life of David. This is a messianic prophecy that David is writing here, and it was fulfilled in the life of Christ with amazing accuracy. And you mentioned Zechariah too. Right, Zechariah 12.10 says that the Israelites will receive the divine enablement from the Lord and says that when they look upon the Messiah, says they will look on me, the one they have pierced. So the Lord refers to the nation's action of piercing him, a term usually indicating a piercing unto death. And we know that in the book of John, John records that Christ was pierced in his side. And so you look at these prophecies, you know, another one, Zechariah chapter 11, that he's sold for exactly 30 pieces of silver. So we just gone through a handful of those prophecies there, about seven or eight. And you take a look that the Old Testament makes some detailed and specific prophecies of the Messiah and they come to pass. Pat, you know, some skeptics say, well, Jesus could have fulfilled these by chance or Like you said earlier, he manipulated the circumstances so that he would be the one to fulfill these prophecies. How would you answer something like that? Well, you know, Peter Stoner wrote in his book, Science Speaks, the probability. He calculated, did a detailed calculation of the probability of Christ fulfilling just eight of these prophecies by chance. And what he came out with was this, the probability of Christ fulfilling just eight of these prophecies by chance is one over 10 to the 17th power. That's 1 over 10 with 17 zeros behind it. That's like filling the state of Texas, you know, with a one story filled of, qu- of quarters and then putting an X on three of the quarters and mixing it in that great pile. And then I come with a helicopter and I jump out and the first quarter I pick up is the one with the X on it. <laughs> That's how great the odds are. Now, how about 48 prophecies? How about 50 How about when you get to all 100? I mean, you're pretty much, by that time, talking almost a mathematical zero here. What's the probability that Christ somehow manipulated all of this? Well, if Christ could have manipulated all of these prophecies and fulfilled them all, you know what? He is the divine Son of God. (laughs) Yeah. 
We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. You'll find Pat Zuckerman's interviews with leading scholars and speakers on the most crucial issues facing the church and the world. Go to evidenceandanswers.org and be equipped. And right now, there's a free offer from Evidence and Answers, Pat's teaching on the Da Vinci Code deception. The Da Vinci Code book and movie will continue to impact the world for some time. And you can expect sequels and spinoffs to continue to influence people to doubt the claims of Jesus Christ. So get Pat's teaching on this important subject for free. It's yours for the asking. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and click on Contact Pat. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. This has been Kevin Harris. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. Don't forget about the free offer we have, Pat's teaching in front of a live audience on the Da Vinci Code deception. Go there now. God bless and thanks so much for listening. Evidenceandanswers.org.